Okay. Well, um, just starting out here. <clears throat> Last week, week 20, we got to Babylon. So uh, we're, we're in Babylon where we're starting here, and we're going to kick off. And again, my goal, we're, I don't think any lesson we've done is, is going to cover so many different books of the Bible um, as what we're going to do here this morning. To save on confusion, I feel like we've brought a lot of uh, political entities into the lesson. We have Babylon, we have Persia, we have all these prophets and all these books. Where does it all fit in? How does it all fit together? Um, so to try and, co- and try to cover this in a way that's least confusing, we're going, I'm going to tr- sort of track Israel, Israel's return, the return of the Jews from Babylon um, and match and match the figures of that return with the political figures of the time in chronological order, okay? Um, hopefully that'll be, that, that's the way I have them listed. Hopefully that will be somewhat less confusing. Hopefully, as we attempt to cover a lot of ground here, it will be um, more straightforward for you. So, just to, to kick right off here, Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem. And I've thrown in some approximate dates again uh, this, uh, this week, just to try and help you stay organized. Again, don't be dogmatic on the dates. It is just a helpful guide. Um, but 586 B.C., somewhere in there, um, about <clears throat> Jerusalem is captured, taken into exile in Babylon. Babylon, a power from the Mesopotamian area, from the east, who has grown, um, has become a an empire through its conquest of other nations like Judah. And they take away most of the Jews. Um, there are a few there who are killed. Um, they take away, the, certainly they take away the, uh, the choice people, the professional people, the royal people, the farmers um, are left though. There are a few farmers who are left and allowed to remain in Judah. A very small number of them that will stay in Judah during this time, basically left there to just preserve the um, agricultural value of the land. They didn't want the land to be completely useless, so they took away the learned class, the, 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 the royal class, the scholarly class, the professional class, but they did leave a few poor people in um, there to farm the land. Um, and Nebuchadnezzar, after conquering the city, does name a provincial rule, ruler over the area. Um, his name is... Gedaliah, by his own people, he's viewed as somewhat as a traitor, perhaps not surprisingly, and he is later assassinated. Um, I talked last week about the resettlement of Samaria and the lions. If anyone remembers that, he was here about the lions. Um, Judah wasn't actively, it appears that it was not actively resettled in the same way. So in Samaria, we have all these nations where people are being sent to sort of repopulate the land after their exile. It doesn't appear that that happened on any scale near that in Judah, so we have a few, for, a few poor farmers left, um, and everyone else is taken away to Babylon. So we have to ask ourselves a, a kind of a question for me, what is life like for the Jews that they're, in, that they're in Babylon now, right? And I've looked at a couple commentaries and stuff, and it seems when we think exiled, think almost more like relocated, okay? It appears as though the Jews... Um, they lived in their own settlements and they were allowed to have businesses and homes. Um, 
It's important to note that again, Babylon was becoming this big empire, so conquered peoples being brought back was not unique, okay? It is a situation they dealt with a lot because as they expanded their control over the known Near Eastern world, there's more and more people that are being brought in. And um, so the Jews were, were allowed to live sort of in their own little communities. There's even evidence that some of them were very prosperous, more prosperous than even they were back at home and became large figures in economic and civic life. And some evidence that 70 years later when the time came to return to the Holy Land that there might be a lot of people who didn't really want to go. So that's kind of interesting. It's sort of a, um, it's a different picture of uh, certain aspects of the captivity. Difficult, yes. Trying times, of course, and we'll read about some of those. But um, they were even allowed to some extent to practice their own religion, although without a temple. Um, one, one commentary I looked in said that this was the era where the, the synagogue came to rise, um, sort of a, a, a stand-in substitute for the temple since we don't have a temple and we're not at home. I don't know if that's true, but I just thought I'd throw that in there for, I thought it was interesting. Um, and, we, and Nebuchadnezzar's son would later release Judah's uh, last, uh, well, I guess you might say last legitimate or normal king Jehoiachin from prison and treat him rather well. We read about that in 2 Kings 25. And this is the time, again, this is how I'm listing these to try and help us keep um, on track with uh, what's happening at what time. The prophet Ezekiel is active at this time. He was deported along with Jehoiachin to Babylon in somewhere around 597 BC. He was born of a priestly lineage and it appears he lived the rest of his bank, lived out the rest of his life um, near the Kyber Canal near Babylon. So he, so he finished his life in Babylon, it seems. He writes in heavily symbolic language. Um, Ezekiel is known for uh, writing or speaking about the previous idolatry that had led his nation to dwell in this foreign land. He talked about the need for repentance. And he also, this is very interesting, um, he also includes these sort of uh, dramatic uh, visions of the likeness of God. This is something that's kind of interesting, kind of new, where he has these visions where he's, you know, seeing God or seeing... Or seeing it. So it, it's fascinating in that way, and it's kind of unique to Ezekiel. Ezekiel also talks about a future everlasting covenant to replace the old covenant of Israel. He writes about a future Davidic dynasty, and he speaks about God cleansing his people from sin and giving them new hearts. Um, this is um, a, a passage, if you look through here, in Ezekiel that Pastor Jeremy's read many times. Um, sort of striking language because now we see a shift, okay? We're in Babylon. We're talking about a Davidic lineage. We're talking about um, God cleansing his people from sin, giving them new hearts. Language that we have not really heard much of up until this point in time. So my question is... Um, just as New Testament Christians, we ought to ask ourselves, what do we make of God's covenant with David regarding a kingdom that should be established forever? Um, we can look back if you want to read about that. Second Samuel 7, 16 and 17. The nation, after all, is in exile, and forever is a very long time. We need to be able to connect these dots here with the Davidic kingdom. What are we talking about right now? Your thoughts. Oh, Lee. Go ahead, Lee. My thoughts are never worthy of a microphone. But oh, I disagree, <laughs> Lee. <laughs> uh, 
it's like God's working behind the scenes. And he, he hasn't given up on him. And uh-huh. I mean, history will reveal that because they will be back in the land. And even through, you know, modern history and the Holocaust, all the way that ways that God has dealt with Israel, the nation, and then the people that are spread throughout the world. He's working behind the scenes, and we, we can't tell. And it, lots of times it looks very, very bad and dark. But, you know, God, that's how he works. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need everything to be, you know, do this, do that, one, two, three. It's going to be right in front of you. It's it's all going on, and that's a good uh, lesson for us, too, is to trust him yep. in our own lives when things don't look so great. I agree. I, I agree. I think um, knowing that God can work in ways that we don't completely understand is certainly true. I'll, re- I'll read this passage for you in 2 Samuel 7, 16 and 17. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So, the forever Davidic king, the king of Davidic lineage, who will sit on an eternal throne. We have to look to the New Testament now, okay? And we see the fulfillment of that in our Lord and Savior. And we see the the continuation of that Davidic line and the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. I just think it's very interesting to quick and quickly stop and connect the dots here and just think, well, isn't the Davidic line, you know, isn't the Davidic kingdom gone, you know, isn't it? And, And we know that God keeps his promises and he fulfills his vows. And I just think it's really interesting that, you know, they're still waiting in some sense for that final forever, you know, the kingdom to be established forever. Forever is a long time that can only be established, you know, eternally. But um, just a quick little side note here um, to talk about, you know, Ezekiel, a very, very um, interesting prophet. And I hope these little, I'm giving you just a little taste of like whole books here, but I hope um, these little bits um, sort of whet your appetite and make you want to go and read a little bit more, dig a little bit deeper. They are fascinating, each in their own way, and they're each a little bit different. Um, and famously, the Babylonian captivity is the time of the prophet Daniel. So the book of Daniel, we'll cover that. Um, Daniel was taken away by Nebuchadnezzar's chief eunuch. He was there looking for choice young men to bring back to Babylon who would receive a special education and would serve at the king's court. Um, So we were looking for the the best, the brightest, you know, intelligent, good-looking, you know, learns well, speaks well. Um, It is possible that Daniel himself was made a eunuch during this process, but can't be dogmatic on that. Um... His career in Babylon, I think you would call distinguished and long-lasting. Daniel's service was so valuable that he did what we might say he spanned administrations, okay? There was a new ruler, Daniel was still there. There was a new kingdom that took over, and Daniel was still there. You have to be a very valuable, hardworking... Think about the attributes it would take, even in our country, to, to be of great service to like four or five different presidents in a row, right? I mean, it's a tall order, okay? Daniel achieved that. Um, the first six books of Daniel are devoted, are, are sort of a firsthand account of um, his time in Babylon, certain events. And then the second six, book, uh, six chapters of the book contain prophecies. Um, Daniel sort, uh, was given power to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which brought him to the forefront. Um, he... His story of the, the fiery furnace, 
Um, Nebuchadnezzar's madness and his restoration. Remember when he ate grass, you know, and then regained his sanity. And uh, <clears throat> later on, Daniel would talk about Belshazzar, who was Nebuchadnezzar's son, and talk about how Belshazzar used uh, vessels from the God's temple at a party. Remember the writing on the wall? Um, again, you can all go read about that if you're not familiar with it. But again, he was summoned to interpret the writing, um, foretold the immediate end of the Babylonian kingdom and the death of Belshazzar that very night. That's punishment. And after the conquest of Babylon by the Persian Empire, Daniel um, got in trouble. This is, the, this is the lion's den, right? He was faithful in his daily prayer, um, cast into a den of lions, and um, his protection by God in this den of lions would uh, lead this Persian king to affirm the power and, leg- and the legitimacy of the God of the Jews in a way similar to um, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, after his madness. And these are really striking passages, if, if you go and read them, like in Daniel 6, where it just the things that these um, kings said about the God of Israel after the lion's den, after the madness, and they came back. And it's amazing to hear them, them praising and affirming um, the God of the Jews. Um, so it kind of got me thinking, what would it be like for the citizens of Babylon or Persia to find out about their God praising this Israelite? I mean, their king praising this Israelite God. It's rather striking, right? I mean, like, oh, you mean the... Yeah, these are just like the newest, latest group of captives, right? That's not unique around here. But now our king's saying these nice, these amazing things about their God. I think that would, be, would have been an attention grabber. But also important to note, um, as I'm studying through this, they lived in a polytheistic society whereby it's perfectly legitimate for a king to recognize a God and say, that God has power, that's an amazing God. There's a big difference between recognizing their power and giving them exclusivity, right? So it can be a God. It's, it's a real God. It's a new God, perhaps, to them. But that's a, that's, we're not saying he's the only God. So, um, unfortunately, yes, they're very inclusive um, with their deities. Um, so, but, but just an interesting little take on... Just, just the idea of hearing your kings praising this new God, and it probably did garner some attention. Yes, please, Greg. I've always been struck with um, how unusual this situation is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we can't even imagine that that we could have a person that w- that say was previously Taliban. And we uh, captured, ca- uh, captured them, and then made them some sort of head of state uh, that served Obama, yep. Trump, and Biden. Uh, I just, I just find that uh, very, very strange. You know that you would not be concerned about the allegiance of somebody that you're investing all this instruction and and then putting them in high places. Uh, I mean, Daniel was second in command, and, and yet he was not even of the. He was a known enemy. Yeah, I think I think it's good that you said that, Greg, to highlight a part of it that I 
glossed over, and that's just that coming from an enemy power, a foreign nation, and that along with rising to such heights, very unusual. Like you said, it would be like if if our country captured enemies and one of them went on to become like yeah, Secretary of State or like head of national security. It's, 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 it's odd. And I think it speaks to a couple things. One is Daniel's faithfulness and his usefulness. He must have been a hardworking and honest man. Second of all, God's, God's favor, God blessing him. God blessing him in a way. Um, Joseph in Egypt, right? To rise from, you know, prison to such heights in Pharaoh's household. Um, I think it's God rewarding rewarding him and being faithful. And we'll see throughout this story that although certainly they're being punished and the punishment is severe, God is not done blessing you know, the Jews. His hand is still on them and his blessing is still on them. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's very fascinating. Other thoughts about Daniel? Questions about life in captivity? I've got more, but I've clipped a lot of it just for time. Um, just a, like I said, kind of a, a picture of the Babylonian captivity. Because, as I said, there will soon be a new empire taking over. This is the Persian Empire, right? Captured Babylon in around 539 B.C. Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon. He's the founding monarch of what's either called the First Persian or the Achaemenid Empire. Okay? And we have, he was known for a few things. But one of them was he was, again, think about this. He has to rule over this large empire, many peoples, many customs, many religions. And he was known for being, um, having a lot of respect for the local customs and traditions among his subjects. And he sort of had this um, central government with satraps throughout the kingdom that were over the regional areas. Okay, And um, it was sort of like, if you're loyal to the empire, you render service to the empire, you can do your own thing under the hand of the empire. And it seems to um, have kept the peace as much as we can tell. And that's why it was his policy. But more importantly, what does this mean for the Jews? Well, it's very important for them because with the, after a period of time with the Persians, they were sent home somewhere around 538. Um, apparently, there were other nations also that were sent home as well. Um, because the Babylonians had captured these people and the new Persian Empire was sort of like, you be loyal to us, you can go home. Um, and this helped keep unrest in the kingdom to a minimum. An Israelite named Sheshbazar, was, um, who was of royal lineage, was given charge over the return of some 5,000 vessels from the temple. So there is some, still some temple artifacts and some temple... Um, uh, utensils that are brought back with them. This is the first uh, wave of <clears throat> the first wave of those who are returning back to Judah and to Jerusalem. And the king of Babylon also appoints Sheshbazar as a government over the exile as governor over the exiles. Um, so uh, here's a really important question because I, I mentioned it earlier. Um, the, the return of the Jews back happened in kind of waves. It didn't happen all at once. It happened, so, you know, there's at least three major waves of, of Israelites returning. And I told you that some of them had done so well in Babylon that there was a question of whether people would want to return or enough people would want to return. Um, so 
why do you think they did return? It's not, it's not really a trick question. I just mean, why, why did they go back? If you, you know, I mean, they're in a foreign land, and certainly some of the, there have been times when some of the foreign leaders have been very hard on them. Why would they want to go back? Maybe they're prospering where they are. Maybe not. What do you think? Back center. Lee first. That's right. No, go ahead. We'll get him a mic here in a sec. Well, hopefully the people that were going back were loyal, the loyal people that remembered the Lord and stuff like that. And is Nehemiah in, in, in here anywhere, or is that yep. way back? Okay. We, we will, we'll get to it. Like okay. I said, I've tried to sort of put it in Thanks. the chronological order, and that's why I'm telling you, it's, it kind of goes in waves, but we will get there. I promise we will not miss Nehemiah. Yes, Al. I was just going to say, uh, you know, it was, the, it was still the promised land, so, mm-hmm. I mean, they knew at least most of them had some idea of the stories and the promises that were made. And, and I think in just uh, from a common sense standpoint, you, you always have that where this is your homeland and mm-hmm. you have a, a tugging at the heart, especially if it can be established as, uh, you know, a land where you all come back together and work towards a common cause. So I think there was probably a lot of reasons, but, just to again, just to get out from under and be under, try to be under in your own land is is a pretty big deal. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of other reasons too, but those those stand out to me. Yeah, I, I think that you know that it's been 70 years. We know that there are people alive who can remember it because there's old men who remember the first temple who are going to look at the second temple and have a reaction to that. So it's not beyond living memory. Um, and I think you said there's always that strong sense of home, that sense of like this is our place. Did anyone look up Ezra one five? Anyone look that up? Marion, would you read it for me? <laughs> this this was a passage that, as I was kind of searching for the answer to this, the passage that kind of came to that I think might be helpful too. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah, and Benjamin, and the priest, and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. I think it speaks about going up to Jerusalem to rebuild the house of the Lord, that, that the desire. But it talks about God stirring up their hearts. So again, I think we see the, 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 the active hand of God stirring up these people you know, to want to go home, to want to repair the temple, to want to do these things. I think that God's playing a role here as well. Um, and I just, it's just a good question, you know, to ask yourselves, why, why did they want to return? And I think that the sense of being home, the sense of wanting, you know, wanting to have their own place again, the memories, and also God's hand. So the people, this is in this first wave, returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his or, own, his or her own town. Um, they, if you want to read through in, in Ezra 2, this, it's, it's all chronicled very carefully, the numbers of people who went back, some 42,000 and change, excluding servants. Um, and they do have some valuable possessions and some livestock. And right away, <clears throat> or it's not too long, according to their ability, the people give a free will offering. What's this offering for? We're building the temple, right? The temple was leveled. There's no more temple. They have no place to worship and sacrifice um, in the ruins of the city. 
And the people gathered in Jerusalem, and Joshua the priest and his kinsman's rubble rebuild the altar of God. And the, they put the altar in its proper place. And it said they're in fear now, and, this is, and, this, and they're in fear of the people surrounding them, okay? Because remember, they used to be this powerful nation, fortified city with a temple, with all of its riches, military to defend itself. Now they're back. The city's smashed. There's no temple. First thing they're trying to do is get something going so they can worship, but they're afraid of the people around them. This will be a continuing theme. Um, but the sacrifices begin again on the new altar. This is in Ezra 3. And the Jews celebrate the Feast of Booths. Preparations, further preparations for the temple are made. Um, there's paying workers, they're assembling raw materials. And the foundation of the new temple is laid. And an interesting juxtaposition some people, when they see the foundation of the temple, scream for joy and shout for joy. But it also says that. Some of the older men who remember the former temple look at it and weep. But all the noise kind of mixed together becomes sort of indistinguishable. Um, just to be clear, why would some of the old men look at the foundations for this new temple, the beginning of new hope, and cry? Exactly. It's, it, it's, it's not like Solomon's temple, right? They're going to try and build a temple, but to be clear, it's not like Solomon's temple. Um, but they are, they are working, working to rebuild. Um, but remember, the people in the land who surrounded them, they're not happy about this, okay? They, they obviously see this as a sign of consolidation, and um, they worry about that, and they don't want them there anyway, because um, for 70 years there hasn't been any great power in Jerusalem. So they play a very interesting trick, these surrounding people, they send a letter to the king of Persia. They praise him and say, you know, for, for the king's good, you should know this, um, that they're rebuilding Jerusalem. Well, I mean, they're laying out the temples for the city, but I mean, splitting hairs here, right? They're, re they're, they're going to rebuild Jerusalem. And it says, quote, they are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. Remember all the trouble they were before? If you let them rebuild, they will be trouble to you again, O king. Don't let them do this. All right? And the king, you know, and, and, and the Persian king had, had told them they could go home. But the work on the temple ceases, and it will not start again until the second year of a new king, Darius, Darius I. So the, the, we have some, some Jews who are now back in Jerusalem. They are, they've taken up an offering. They're trying to you know, get the temple started again. We have an altar now, and they're starting sacrifices. But with some uh, clever reporting from the surrounding peoples, um, the king, the Persian king, who's still very much in control of it, is not happy about that, and they shut down construction. And the next significant Persian ruler to know is uh, Darius or Darius. Um, he, he's famous, secularly even historically famous. Um, he's famous for his building projects, for the way he consolidated the Persian Empire. Don't worry too much about that. Um, he doesn't have much success in Greece, but that's not important either. I just threw that on there. Um, in case, in case any of you are like Greek history, 
Um, but the prophet, now we have two prophets here that, that arise. We have Haggai, and he begins his ministry by really just getting after the Jewish people who are living in Jerusalem. He says they live in paneled houses while God's house remains unfinished. He, he, he speaks to them of God's word. He tells them that God wants them to rebuild the temple. He tells all the people that. He tells them that God has assured them that he will be with them. And the Lord stirs up the spirit of all the people, and they work on the new temple. They, they renew their work on this new temple, and they complete it in only five years. It is not, again, like Solomon's temple, but they do with this new motivation here from a new, that this prophet has, has arisen and said, you guys all have nice houses. God doesn't have a house. You stopped, right? Let's get it done. And, and they do. Um, and again, it's, it's modest. It's not what the old temple was, but God tells his people not to fear and he reminds them, my quote, my spirit remains in your midst, end quote. So God's telling them, like, I'm still with you, okay? The temple's not what it was. The, sti- the city is still mostly in ruins, but I, but I am still with you. Um, and remember earlier when the surrounding people reported to the king, well, this isn't supposed to be going on, O king. They're rebuilding Jerusalem. King Darius makes a search of the royal archives, and he finds a proclamation by one of his predecessors commanding that the Jews be allowed to rebuild the house of God. Oh, Okay, well, I mean, we can give him credit for at least checking and, you know, looking it up. And he's like, oh, someone absolutely authorized this. This is okay. But because he's a king and because he's been questioned, he actually not only affirms this command and says, yes, you may rebuild your house of worship. He also says anyone who fears, anyone who interferes with this will face a punishment Punishment of impalement. We'll find a beam in your house, we'll tear it out, and we'll impale you on that beam. So, when we say they can rebuild the temple, we mean it. Rebuild the temple. As a matter of fact, it appears he gave them a royal grant, some royal um, monies to help make it happen. So they really pushed it forward. Um, this was, so, in a way, it almost backfired. That by, by the Persian king looking and finding out that all this had been authorized, the Jews are even more empowered to go ahead and finish the project. So we see God's hand here. And I said there were two prophets here, Zechariah, contemporary with Haggai. Haggai. Um, he encourages the Jews to repent of their evil ways and renew their covenant with God. He also prophesies regarding um, the restoration of Judah and the Lord giving salvation. So these two, again, would have been, would have been prophesying at about the same time. This is what the people are hearing um, at this moment. Um, and moving on in the Persian Empire, we now get to uh, Darius' son, Xerxes, which is a fun name to say. Um, Xerxes um, is, is not going to figure largely on our story. I just put him in here. Um, he also, like his father, fared poorly in Greece. He did manage to defeat 300 very famous Spartans, but and, uh, that's sort of outside the scope of our study. Um, and it's likely he is the Ahasuerus mentioned in the book of Esther. Okay, so there are still some Jews back in the Persian Empire. It seems, based on the commentaries I looked through, it seems likely this is when the story of Esther is happening, right? So Esther and Naaman and Mordecai, like this is that 
it's a, it's a uh, familiar story. I'll let you guys go back and look through it here just for time's sake. But this is, uh, it appears that this is the king of the, story, of the book of Esther. <clears throat> and this king also sends a scribe to Jerusalem along with a second wave of Jews. His name's Ezra. Ezra is skilled in the law of Moses and he sets out to instruct his countrymen in God's law and these statutes. Um, he, cha- he changes, he alters, he corrects, we might say, the, 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 the conduct of some of the priests. He speaks out against um, some of his countrymen who've slid back into old sin. So there, there's enough people now in Jerusalem that, and they've completed the temple, but some of the priests aren't doing things correctly. Some of the people are starting to fall back into patterns of own sin, of, of old sin. And here we have this, you know, scribe, this scholar in the law of Moses who's sent back by the, by the Persian king. And he shows up and he's like, uh-uh, nope. Here's what the law of Moses said. And we're going to connect to this, okay? We're going to get back to the way it's supposed to be. And this is in Ezra 7 through about chapter 10. There is confession amongst the remaining Jews, and, and, there's a, and there's a repentance. And really, what in our day and age we'd call sort of like revival, okay? A, 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 they make it right, and, and they're working to get everything back together. Um, and also, at this time, we have Nehemiah, cupbearer, or at least a trusted official of, king, of the king of Persia, and he hears a report about the condition of his homeland and reports it to the king And because he holds the king's favor. He sends Nehemiah back to Judah along with a third wave of, of Jewish exiles. And Nehemiah, in a book that's, in, in, in his own book, a lot of this is recounted, a book by his own name. Um, he, he had to struggle a lot with external resistance as he guided God's people toward this Restoration of Jerusalem's defensive walls. Okay, so we got the we got the, the the altar done. We got the temple done. Now we're trying to rebuild these walls. Right. Once you rebuild the walls, the city becomes exponentially more powerful. Okay, it becomes defendable. It becomes militarily significant. And again, the surrounding people have issues with this. They don't want to see the walls rebuilt. And um, they keep ramping up the pressure against Nehemiah, but um, he's faithful. And with God's help and protection, the wall around the city is completed in 52 days. And the city is now more secure. And so we've seen this kind of waves, waves of Jews coming back and how the, the, the city has been rebuilt a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. Well, now we have a city, we have a temple, a smaller temple, you know, the altar, we have... Sacrifices resumed. We're having the, the feasts. Um, and we, 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 just, we just see that we, we're, almost do, we're almost done with the restoration. And then we get to Malachi. And might say one of the last, the, uh, last Old Testament prophet. And Malachi, I wanted to make time really quickly to speak about because Malachi is it before we get to the New Testament, okay? We've brought the Jews back. 
the city is being rebuilt, the temple is rebuilt, the altar is rebuilt. We've had Ezra come in and sort of correct, correct people back to the Mosaic law. There's been a revival. Um, but there are shadows and shades of problems that we will see pop up in the New Testament. Because Malachi, at this time, he condemns the priesthood for corruption and the people for a sort of callousness of heart toward God. I've got a passage here from um, a commentary that I'd like to read to you. This is by Eugene Merrill, Historical Study of the Old Testament, to again, to again speak about this time. And again, this is talking about the prophet Malachi. Though the Jews never were idolatrous after the exile, still they very seldom lived up to the Lord's requirements. Malachi could point out such things as their offering inferior animals to the Lord, the sinfulness of the priests, and their mixed marriages, but they would only reply, wherein have we offended the Lord? They had come through the exile, they had rebuilt their country, and they had, been, and they had become covenant conscious once again. Yet their very security had produced a callousness of spirit and heart and had bred indifference and a coldness in their relationship to God and each other. 400 years or so later, when Jesus walks on earth, what does he talk to the priests about? You know, you like to look all right on the outside, but where's your heart? Okay? Malachi is, 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 is a harbinger of, of issues we will see raised, you know, by Christ himself in the New Testament. Okay? So the city is rebuilt. The Jews are back. There is... Um, but there is this warning, okay? And I just want to make that connection because you see where we're leaving them. A little more secure, brought back, a little better, back to the Mosaic Law a little bit, but now we're starting to have trouble with you know, corruption and maybe we're doing all the right sacrifices, but where is your heart? And the very thing that Christ will come along and excoriate people for, we see arising now at this time. As far as the Persian Empire... Um, in 322 B.C., um, a young Macedonian prince by the name of Alexander will defeat them at the Battle of Gagamela, and they will be no more. Um, Alexander's, the Great's empire was very short-lived. It was divided immediately upon his death. He didn't live very long. Um, and then we see that this, we don't see a power as big as as the Babylonian, Persian, or, or even Alexander's empire for a period of time, but in, in the intertestamental period, slowly we'll see the rise of Rome, okay? Because Rome, as we know, also is going to factor largely into the New Testament, okay? So I've kind of gotten you guys to, I know it's a lot, I've kind of gotten you guys to, here's where Jerusalem is, here's where the Jews have returned to, here's the political situation, um, Here's where a lot of these prophets figured into all this. Um, I hope, I, I've left a little extra time for some questions just because I had to speed through that. But again, i trying to keep them as near as I can figure it in, in, in a chronological order to show you what prophets and what books plug in at what point in the story. What were the people hearing from Ezra? What were the people hearing from um, Zechariah? What were the people hearing from Haggai and when? I think that all helps show the details. So questions, please. I feel like I've been, my mouth is literally, is dry. I've been talking so much. So I'd love some questions. Lois. 
On your um, the diagram you gave us of kings and prophets, yes, it shows Ezra and Nehemiah under the king's column, and it says governors over them. Mm-hmm. Um, what's how did they get in that position? Is it because they were sent back to yes, yes, be in and I, I omitted some of that, but some of the t- sometimes with like when the king would send them back, okay, you go back with these people, you be governor, because remember, they had this sort of centralized system where like, I'm the king, I rule the empire, but I have local authorities that I place in power, you know, who are under my, under my hand. So yes, when some of those people were sent back, they were made regional rulers, absolutely. And, and again, if you go through the books and read more, you'll get more of that sense, but... Um, Yes, many of them were local rulers. Yes, Greg. There were four main uh, military empires in the old in the uh, in history: the Babylonian mm-hmm. Empire, the Medes and Persians, mm-hmm. which we saw today, then the Romans, mm-hmm. and is it then the Greek? No, the Greek would come first. The Greek Greek was first. Yeah, it wasn't um, the Greek. Alexander the Great, like I said, he's from Macedon in Greece. He conquered the Persian Empire. So for a very short time, he, um, just by virtue of his victory, sort of became king over the Persian Empire. But again, Alexander the Great died very young, and there was never a sense he was not successful in reigning for a long period of time. As soon as he died his empire was fragmented and divided up amongst you know, his generals and that sort of thing. So his empire was, so that, that was the conquest of Persia. And then um, we have Alexander the Great. And that was, um, that was the, 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 the spread of the Hellenic, the Greek culture throughout the ancient world about how we have like the Greek language gets spread and Greek culture and customs um, because uh, Greek cultures and customs were in vogue even when Rome arose after that. So, um, and then we see Rome arise. So I think it would, it would tuck in there. Greece, I would tuck in um, after Persia and before Rome. And it wasn't, like, it was so short-lived, it may not, you know, many people not, may not count it as an empire as such. But by virtue of defeating the Persians for at least a time, Alexander was the, the king of all that had been Persia. Um, does that help? And then, like I said, Rome, like I said, and we see Rome rise in the intertestamental period. Um, Yeah, that's how you get all these, yeah, Greek gods that have Roman names also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have, you know, Mars and Jupiter and all the the shared deities and customs. Yes? Well, I think you touched on it in the past, but I was wondering, um, as we're looking at the prophets here yes. is and the exile, is mm-hmm. that when they started really focusing on a Messiah? Uh, a, um, In other words... Back in David's line, David's time and Solomon's time and all those kings, I don't hear much about a Messiah. I, I think prophecy is a very deep field, and I don't want to gloss over it in any way, but I do think when you read through some of these prophets, you'll pick up little bits, shifting of tone when it talks about like salvation or when it talks about, um, you know... The, when it talks about salvation or it talks about, you know, a new covenant or um, 
there is that shift in tone. Yes, I believe so. And, and I think it is helping us, helping set us up for what is to come. But it is interesting to see, even in just a, along with that prophecy, even just in a pragmatic way, just like Ezra, that, that God had him there at that time. Here's a scholar who can correct the problem that the people are having right now. So it's pragmatic, but it's also prophetic. And that's interesting to me. Other thoughts? Lee. How did God pre- preserve his word through all this? Because when you think about all that, you know, destroying of cities right. and somebody, you know, right. you had to have scrolls that actually yeah. had the words in that I, sort of I, thing. I think, yeah, I think that, um, I don't have a specific answer, but we know that there was a whole class of scribes and priests who were totally, um, that their whole focus was on the preservation and application of the law and, um, and again, 70 years is a long time, but it's not outside of living memory. Um, so certainly some, you know, things could be preserved, you know, people who'd been there and seen that and remembered how it was. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that certainly there would have been. We know that many of the vessels from the temple were preserved just because of their intrinsic value. I mean, there were gold and silver and precious metals, and a lot of those were sent back um, with the with this scrolls and stuff uh, there's reading of the law. If you want, you know, like I said, if you want to go deeper into some of the passages I gave you, um, but yeah, no, and, it, and God's hand. Ultimately, that's the answer: is that God did not want His law, His 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 customs, and Israel's history to be lost, so He preserved it. It's the same way, ultimately, that we can have faith that how you know how do we know that this book that we read here? It's because God has preserved it for us, right? That's that's where the, the part of that surety comes from. Greg. Well, we don't, it wasn't the only way that God saw to it that his uh, word was kept, but we, we, you know, discovered in, what, 1948 that a lot of uh, early manuscripts were, had been saved and put away in jars in caves. Uh, maybe they did that uh, in more than just one place. It, very possible. They have done it yeah. several places. We, we, th- thank you, Greg. That, that's a great point. We know that, that um, we've found caches of preserved manuscripts that were hidden away, and even in t- today's, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the dry air has preserved some of them so that can, they're read, still readable. And we know that during some of the persecutions later in the divided kingdom, people were actually being hidden away, sometimes in caves and that kind of a thing, to stay away from the evil, wicked kings. We talked about that a little bit. So... That, that's a great point as well. Um, I think that's really important. And again, we look back, and, and there are long stretches. This can seem a little bit dry, but it's very important to remember that these people in history were people just like you and I. They weren't living day-to-day life thinking, how am I going to be remembered 2,000 years later? They had practical concerns about how they were going to live, how they were going to survive, how they were going to protect their family and their culture, and, and, and their relationship with their God. They, they had these, so, so when we look back on it, that they were people like you and I who had you know, a lot of the same temptations, a lot of the same, don't think of them so much as just like a historical figure on a page. Think of them as people who were getting through daily life as best they could, sort of like you and I do. And now we're just looking back on them through the lens of scripture. That helps me a little bit sometimes because we are supposed to learn from this after all. It's written for our instruction. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Other thoughts, questions? 
I told you guys if you guys I would do a little study sheet for the intertestamental period. I don't feel comfortable doing a, an actual ABF on that because the sources would be almost all extra biblical, so it's not really an ABF at all. But I'll print some of those off and they'll be out by the mailboxes if you guys want them. Um, it's we we've we've done 21 weeks of Israel in the Old Testament. We've connected a lot of dots, and those of you who are still here probably all deserve medals because, like I said, it's a, it was a long ABF, and like I said, I know there were long lists of kings in there that were probably sleep-inducing. But thanks for hanging in there. Um, other questions or thoughts? No, oh, thanks. Thank you, guys. So. Have a great week, and um, if any of you guys have uh, ideas for future much shorter topics that are of interest to you, much shorter, we could do that. Um, Thank you so much.